This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Dr. Ruth Shapiro, editor of The Real Problem Solvers, Social Entrepreneurs in America, a wonderful and critically important book. Ruth's work presents the diverse voices of leading practitioners, funders, and thinkers to answer key questions about the current trends in social entrepreneurship, social innovation, and the evolving intersection of business and philanthropy. Ruth is social entrepreneur in residence at the Commonwealth Club of California and also the principal at Key Strategies. The Commonwealth Club is the nation's oldest and largest public affairs forum, coordinating over 400 annual events on topics ranging across politics, culture, society, and the economy for its 18,000 members and beyond. KE is a consulting firm specializing in creating broader networks, understanding, and business ventures between individuals and companies in Asia, Europe, and the United States. Ruth has earned a PhD from Stanford University, master's degrees from Harvard University and George Washington University, and a BA from the University of Michigan. She was the founder of the Hong Kong-based Asia Business Council, served as its first executive director, and is now its senior advisor. Prior to her work with the Asia Business Council, Ruth worked in the field of international development, where she held management positions and built new program areas at the Academy for Educational Development, the Harvard Institute of International Development, and Global Outlook. Ruth's work has been highlighted and praised by Forbes, the Skull World Forum, and the Ashoka community, and many others. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the real problem solvers. Thank you, David. I'm pleased to be with you. I just have to correct one thing. Sure. Um, and it's it's something. The the word is kui. Oh, thank kui, you. And kui is uh, is clearly not an English word. It's a Chinese word. Right. And it means can do. And it means can do with gusto. Awesome. Um, so it's it's I think that it's an important word to point out because it epitomizes the mindset of a social entrepreneur. And that probably originated from your work at the Asia Business Council, I would imagine, your your familiarity with that word. Right. I I, I think that in the world today there are Kui people, can do people, and no can do people and um social entrepreneurs are clearly can do people and we want more can do people in the world, and those are the ones that I gravitate to, and I think many of your your listeners and you will gravitate to as well. Absolutely. You know, my reflection is that every great project like this one starts long, long beforehand with some kind of inspiration or vision, and then there's a lot of that spirit that you were just talking about to make it be a reality. And I was wondering if you could take us back to the beginning, to maybe the time that this first came into your mind as a possibility that you would create this work and tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind it and then how did it unfold? Well, I um, had been living abroad for more than six years and um, including four years in Hong Kong running the Asia Business Council, which was 
the organization that I started and and ran. Um, and I came back to the to Northern California, and I started. You know, I use the word social entrepreneur, and um, I heard it all the time. And in fact, I had known about this term for a long time. When I first met my husband in 1986, he was working for Ashoka. Ah. Um, <laughs> so I had a long history with Bill Drayton and with Ashoka going back to the early days. Um, but I was hearing it being used um, to describe what I would have said were regular nonprofit organizations. And I was u- hearing it being used for people who are in the funding community and people in the, you know, in, in the academic community. And I started to think, well, and I thought of myself as a social entrepreneur having built a number of organizations, including the Asia Business Council, from scratch. And, um, but I, I'd say, I said my, my tipping point moment was when I said to someone, well, I, I'm a social entrepreneur, and he said, you can't be a social entrepreneur. You're too old. <laughs> And I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm not that old. Right, right. <laughs> and I thought, well, there's this kind of mindset of these young, you know, hotshots that just come out of business school with some ideas. Is that it? You know, so I decided that if it wasn't clear to me, who had been somewhat immersed in what I thought was this field for some time, it was probably not clear to a lot of other people what that term, what the term means. And so I conducted a little experiment. I walked down the main street of Palo Alto, California, um, which is where Stanford is, and um, I randomly went up to 10 people that I thought looked approachable and said, excuse me, you know, would you mind? I'd like to ask a question. What do you think social entrepreneurship is? And to my surprise, and maybe because, you know, Palo Alto is also the, the epicenter of Silicon Valley, um, but seven out of ten of those people said, well, social entrepreneurship, it must be some kind of business on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. And I realized, aha, so if people in Palo Alto don't know, it's clear that a lot of people don't know. Um, and... So I approached the Commonwealth Club, which, as you said in your introduction, is um, the oldest and largest public forum, public policy and public speakers forum in the country. And I said, you know, I'd like to do a series um, on this field. Um, will, you, will you allow me to do that? I, I raised um, some money from Kellogg Foundation, Skull Foundation, and Omidyar Network to bring 13 of what I would consider uh, among the leading lights in the field to give a talk at the Commonwealth Club over the course of a year. And what I wanted to do was not only focus on the entrepreneurs. Um, I know you had Beverly Schwartz on earlier, and there are books, um, the Bornstein book and Beverly's book that focuses on the entrepreneurs. I wanted to understand the entire ecosystem because when you think about what Ashoka itself, the organization does, and Bill Drayton does, and what the Skoll Foundation and the Skoll World Forum do to kind of push this whole field forward, they're really important actors, if you will, in in the mix. Right. And and so I thought, if you really wanted to understand the field, 
you needed to, of course, understand the motivations and the characteristics of the social entrepreneurs, but you needed to also understand who's pushing this forward, where's the money coming from, where's a lot of the um, academic thinking coming from, and, and how is it evolving as an ecosystem. Right. So when I put the series together, I put it together with a mind to have these different um, representatives from these different parts of the ecosystem in the series. And then um, I, after I put it together, I approached Stanford University Press and asked them if they wanted to publish the book, and they did, and that's how it came about. That's terrific. I, I think you're so right on in terms of the need because it does seem like social entrepreneurship is such an overburdened phrase in the sense that people attach you know whatever meanings they want to it in so many different contexts. And your book is just such a wonderful uh, process of I, I, I want to say you know one of the things I think it succeeds marvelously at is enlightening without uh, ending the dialogue and preserving some of the ambiguities and tensions, which are really uh, quite important and, and enriching in thinking about the subject. Um, I want to spend just a little more time on how the book is organized because uh, a lot of writing in this area is organized thematically, you know, looking at innovations in certain areas and then telling the story of the work in those areas. And your book is very different and very thought-provoking in its organization. I think you've, you've really rightly described it as presenting the ecosystem of social entrepreneurship. Uh, I, my experience of it was really as a collection of voices, which, you know, which you, when you understand how the book emerged out of this series of talks, and that's really been beautifully translated into the final pro product. Um, but you, know, you have entrepreneurs we're giving the lens from really uh, the field view, somebody who's practicing social entrepreneurship, and then um, people like, you know, Primal Shah at Kiva and Louise Packard at Trinity Boston. And then, but then you take us into the, the worldview of funders uh, like Sally Osberg at the Skull Found at Foundation and um, Matt Bannock at the OMDR Network. Um, their perspective is really interestingly different from the perspective of the entrepreneurs. And then you go on to thinkers, you know, people who are really expanding uh, some of the ideas, and finally end up with, um, I think you call them champions, people like Bill Drayton and Muhammad Yunus. And then it's, uh, it's really it's a very rich um, set of perspectives. And, and um, if you could you. say more about how the book is constructed in that way, I think it will really intrigue listeners. Well, um, let me start with the champions first. I think, you know, um, Bill Drayton and Mohammed Yunus have done uh, um, an incredible job of just letting the world know about people like themselves, because both of them truly are social entrepreneurs when they've started movements. Um, and so they, their work has scaled extraordinarily, and that's why I put them as champions. And, of course, Mohammed Yunus, Won the uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work with um, Brameen in Bangladesh, which is now, of course, an international um, organization and movement around microfinance. Um, and Bill was the you know the founder of Ashoka and the creator of this term, social entrepreneurship. Right. Um, uh, when he first started, it was public sector entrepreneur. Ha. Um, 
Um, but then it became social entrepreneur. Um, so um, I wanted to explain um, these different parts of the ecosystem, as I said, and I thought that it would be useful to um, put these, the different voices in groups because um, you, you have read the book, and um, at the end of each section, there is a conversation that happens among everyone in that section. Right. Um, right. Um, which actually came from the actual Q&A from these. These were all talks that were then edited. Sure. So I asked the same people in each section similar questions so that I could um, create a, an effect around Robin um, at the end of each section and get each um, a person in the each contributor to really talk about those stresses that you mentioned, the challenges and the, and the, and the, and the way of thinking that they share and what's different from um, what people's ideas are out in the world. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, when you talk about a social entrepreneur, many people who know what that is, I, I suppose a three out of the ten on, in Palo Alto, right. um, often think of a kind of a lone ranger, somebody who's out there, you know, against all odds, um, by themselves working away at solving a problem. And what we heard loud and clear from the entrepreneurs themselves is, no, you know, I can't do this. I wouldn't be able to do this at all if I were not embedded in the community. Right. If I did not, you know, work with other organizations to, to spread my idea, to work collaboratively. And so I wanted to test some of the kind of the, the imagery against the reality, so to speak, in each section. And I used the Q&A piece of that uh, to be able to do those, that. Yeah, there, there are a number of really, I think, important themes and, and question areas that you touch on in the book. And I wanted to just raise a few of them that intrigued me and get your reaction to them. And then uh, if I've left out some important ones, we can add them in. But okay. one, one that really strikes me, and it comes up a number of times in the book, is the focus on the role of the individual entrepreneur against the backdrop of the team or community. You, you just actually referenced this in the comments you just made. And very interesting how, and the, particularly in the dialogue with the entrepreneurs, practitioners uh, such as Louise Packard had mentioned that perhaps even there's too much emphasis on the individual and that the team, they, they themselves see how critical the construction of the team is to their own success. And yet, uh, I think there's a sense from the funding community that people do feel, and certainly this is this is part of the frame in Ashoka's work, that the entrepreneur has a critical role as a catalyst. And and I think one of your uh, one of your uh, featured uh, speakers, uh, Chris. Uh, Dagelmeyer, I believe it is, at the Stanford Center uh, for Social Innovation, even specifically references how this ties into the theory of the great man and the great woman. You know, mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and perhaps the insight that you had about this thing about balancing, do we focus on individuals? Do we focus on groups? Do we focus on pioneers? Do we focus on the systems in which those pioneers have to do their work? Where do you see that after um, talking with all these people? 
Well, I think that um, it is a balance. I mean, and and uh, you're right that um, a successful entrepreneur is someone who had who who with a certain degree of charisma and drive and tenacity, is able to create alliances across a number of different stakeholders. Um, so it is that person driving things forward. But if that person were, you know, essentially working on their own, my way or the highway, um, they wouldn't be able to succeed. Um, so, so social entrepreneurs, I mean, tenacity is something that, that, that gets references over and over, and I'm sure in all the talks that you've done with the fellows, it comes up, you know, you just have to keep, um, you, you can't take no for an answer, you have to keep going. And it involves evolution of the idea and it involves working, creating partnerships. And um, so the person has to maintain that drive and that ambition, but still work with the community and create alliances across, you know, various stakeholders in, in in whatever the you know in that community or in that uh, in that addressing that same issue as they are yeah it seems like there is an emerging sense that the system really matters and i even hear this a lot in what bill drayton says i mean bill drayton is out now talking about ashoka 20 and you know one of the things that they now have a movement which is everyone a change maker and, you know, so the idea, that's really a qualitatively different idea than sort of, well, we have to find the individual leaders and invest in them. Um, and even in my own work, I've seen this, that there is this thing about the group, you know, do we invest? I think funders really face this issue of, mm -hmm. do I find the person who I think is going to be somehow make the difference and really invest in them and trust their judgment versus something that's much more collaborative, that looks at capacity building and that looks at a problem as opposed to an individual, you know, and I, a lot of that also emerged in your book in a fascinating way. Uh, the funders who talked about their willingness to uh, be this concept of patient capital, you know, that really works with a problem and a large number of people engage with that problem over a long period of time. I, I think it's a fascinating um, area for further thinking and dialogue. I agree. I just, I, I also think that what we're going to find is there's no one right answer. Right. Um, right. Um, but I, I do think that um, the, 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 the really successful entrepreneurs are ones that can essentially galvanize a community. Right. And um, Louise Packard, I wanted to put her in um, to the book because she works through a, uh, a foundation that's connected to Trinity Church in Boston. Right. And I wanted to include that because, you know, you, you know and I know, David, that the great majority of philanthropy in this country, in the United States, is through churches, right, through right. religious organizations. And yet those organizations tend not to be part of this dialogue of social entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, there's, a, there's kind of, a, there, that's an important disconnect that I'd like to try to remedy. Um, and in her chapter, what I, what I, 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 um, I mean, you can probably tell the last name Shapiro. I'm, I'm not. A, a, <laughs> I'm Jewish, but right. um, <laughs> but she gives this really powerful example of of you know this of Jesus and the story of the fish right. and the loaves. Yes. And 
you know, the, the secular equivalent to that it was, is the story of stone soup. Do you, do you remember that story where someone says, I'll put a stone in, but, you know, it would really be great if, if there was a carrot. Does somebody have a carrot? <laughs> yes, put it exactly. In? <laughs> yes. really, and that, you know, essentially, in that case that she pointed out, Jesus uh, got everyone who was at the temple of the, you know, at the, at the, hearing his talk to open their, their knapsacks and share. Right. Um, and I loved, actually, that metaphor. Yes. Um, for this work, too, because clearly Jesus Christ was a entrepre- social entrepreneur. Yeah. He had I, a radical new idea. Um, but he got everybody to buy into it. And um, yeah. not that we should all aspire toward that level of work, but... Yes, such it's such a powerful message, just the whole concept that, you know, the miracle of abundance arises from the miracle of collaboration, you know, and I think that's, that's right. and that, that is, uh, yeah, that's a very, a very interesting um, story and chapter. Um, right. I want, I want to shift gears and go to another point, which also intrigued me greatly. And this, you asked this question, I think several different times in your, in, in the book, and I'm sure it's one that is a theme for you. And that is about the, the difference between, I want to say scaling on the one hand, scaling something and thinking about creating a impactful systemic change. And it's very interesting. You have investors clearly who look at impact with a formula that goes something like, well, we got to look at the number of people you reach and the level of engagement that they're being reached at. And then we we have some kind of metric that tells us, okay, this is something that's going to make an impact. But then on the other hand, you introduce a voice like uh, Jed Emerson at at Blended Value. I, Mm -hmm. I found his remarks so refreshing in terms of he talks about almost co-venturing with entrepreneurs, the idea of learning circles, this concept of failing forward and learning from trial and error. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to ask you your reflection on that. that. On the one hand, funders who are saying, well, listen, I got to find the rocket that I'm going to ride to having some big impact versus funders who say, no, I want to go deep, deep into a social problem and really have some kind of breakthrough understanding um, and recognize that that's, that's a community process. How, how did you see that? How do you see that? Well, I want to make two points about that. First is that um, I think there is a difference between scale and systemic change. Scale, you're delivering X number more of, you know, um, clean water tablets or X number water, more of mosquito nets and you're scaling your endeavor that way. Systemic change is, of course, going to the root of the problem. Right. And I think that um, it's very, in most places in the world, you really can't accomplish systemic change without working somewhat collaboratively with government. Right. And that, that piece has, up until the last, really, couple of years, um, was left out of the discourse. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right? Um, but, but you have to really work with government to a certain extent. You have to work with school districts or you have to work with ministries of health. You have to, to get at systemic change, which I, is much more powerful than just scaling. Scaling is good. Systemic change is better. 
This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Dr. Ruth Shapiro, editor of The Real Problem Solvers, Social Entrepreneurs in America. The idea that your social entrepreneur might be somebody who, who, who as an individual uh, entrepreneur fails, but succeeds in changing the paradigm in some way that becomes incredibly valuable. Um, and I think of like, you know, the, the, the people who created like the GUI operating system, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think they were at Xerox. They never commercially scaled the product, but they changed right. the thinking about what an operating system is supposed to do. That's right. Um, and, and I think that that's, it's really important in whatever field, in health and environment and education. I mean, really, um, the impact that you can have is so much broader and deeper if you work across countries and with collaborating with government. Um, and I and I believe in the last two years, Skull World Forum has introduced um, sessions on how to work with government because it's important. Mm. Um, the other piece that I wanted to, um, the other point I wanted to make in response to your question is. I make a point at the end of the book that I think that this field has been fairly significantly influenced by Silicon Valley. Right. Um, now, here I am in Northern California right now, um, so I'm in this world of Silicon Valley, um, but the, the, a lot of the money for the field is coming from this, from this area. Mm. Um, and these are people who have made a lot of money because they – scaled something like Facebook or eBay or, you know, a, a computer with right. Hewlett and Packard, right? Um, but I, I quote uh, one, uh, a social entrepreneur um, in the book, Eric Weaver, who does, has the largest microfinance organization in, in California. And he said, one of the problems is people are looking for the killer app yeah. for social change. And it doesn't work that way. You know, yes, you can have a killer app that's a great game, <laughs> but you can't have a killer app around, you know, um, infant mortality. Right. <laughs> There's no one right answer. Right. It has to, it's a complex issue with a complex set of solutions and numerous players and organizations and agencies involved. Um, so to think that you're going to find this one, you know, panacea or killer app um, is, is, I think, naive. But there's still this tendency out there to say, well, what is it? What is it? This idea, this is the one that's really going to change everything. Well, and um, it's, it's so fascinating, and it, and it kind of takes me, it's a good segue, that point, to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is this duality that you explore about for-profit versus non-profit models. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, many of the voices in the book are, are reminding us or urging us to, to live in a both-and world instead of an either-or world in that regard. Um, but I think it's worth stepping back, and I think you, this is one of probably your goals in the book, is that um, it, is, it is almost like two different universes. And I think we tend to think of traditional philanthropy as flowing where the market is failing, where there is no good market solution. Um, and, and it certainly does, you know, in the aftermath of an earthquake or dealing with, with tremendous poverty, dealing with some of these social problems, it seems like traditional philanthropy has the only solution. But mm-hmm. then what you're exploring in the book is how people are going, ah, you know what, we just have to tweak the for-profit model. And if we tweak it, it can do some extraordinary things as well. So talk to us a little bit about that. I think it's a, a theme throughout the whole book of people going and, you know, perhaps there is a great chance to talk about Kiva, but um, I'm sure you have many uh, examples in mind and um, talk to us about that. Well, what I say is that now there is a continuum with essentially traditional philanthropy and nonprofits on one side and the market, market-based solutions, you know, on the right. Um, and um, I think you know, what I try to do in the book is explain that when Bill Drayton um, introduced this notion of a social entrepreneur, what he was saying was take the passion, but also take the business rigor, take the way that biz- business people address a problem and use it to address a social problem. And that essentially opened up a really new way of thinking and also that you could use business tools, business rigor, and the market. And a business tool is the use of profit also to address a social issue. And so what's happened is just a proliferation of different um, models and experiments and, uh, you know, to use to use both or to use, you know, to try to introduce at least business rigor, if not business tools and the use of profit into arriving at a solution. And even now, it's changed the field so much. Even a traditional nonprofit that relies on grants must explain its activities in ways that they never had to before. They have to talk about efficacy. They have to measure their results. They have to say, what is the bang you're getting for this buck? Um, so even even all the way to the left, the traditional are being influenced by this notion of bringing a certain degree of rigor into the process. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that, um, as you said, and this really emerges, I think, also in the conversation with uh, Louise Packard at Trinity Boston Foundation. I mean, I think to have those two, that example next to the Kiva example is is mm-hmm. so illuminating because Trinity Boston is more like a traditional philanthropy and yet, and yet it it's being pushed because of this ecosystem to think about system change, to think about impact on social policy, to think about uh, sustainability and all these things. Um, And yet, you know, my my question, I have really a specific question here Mm -hmm. Um, as a social entrepreneur myself, I, I sort of feel like once you have, uh, constructed a business model where you can see that, wow, now I'm scaling 
and I'm not dependent on traditional philanthropy. That's really a paradigm shift of sorts. And do you, do you think that social entrepreneurship, as distinct from social innovation, does imply some kind of a different business model? That's my question for you. Well, I don't think that you have to have uh, – it is always nice when you're running an organization to have sustainable income streams. Right. You know, money that you can count on coming in the door. Yeah. Um, and uh, we – those of us who have raised money from foundations know um, that is a, a stressful way to, to, to fund your endeavor. Yes. They, they, they change their minds. <laughs> right. <You're>, exactly. <laughs> You're no longer a funding priority. Goodbye. Um, so it's nice to be able to think about um, ways that you can have a product that you sell or a service that you sell. Some types of interventions or social delivery organizations lend themselves much more um, easily or readily to that. Um, some of them, you know, there are small organizations that sell, um, you know, Christmas cards. And that just is a nice little annual amount that they get because people buy their Christmas cards. You think about Save the Children, their cards and their ties and those things that, that just augment the amount of um, the, the funding that comes in. Um, the Girl Scouts did it early on. Right, right. right. Selling cookies, <laughs> yes, yes. Right. It's now this multi-million dollar business. <laughs> um, so I think that it is useful if you have a product like that. Jed Emerson, who's in the book, he came from working with um, youth training. And what they did is they set up restaurants and they, you know, that the people would come to eat and they would, you know, train the, the youth to run the restaurant, work in the restaurant, you know. So they were, that was a social enterprise, right? They were they had an income, the restaurant was making money or not, and they were learning on the job. Um, so it really depends on the type of activity that you have and how easily it can lend itself to having some kind of sustainable income stream. But if you can do it, it's terrific. In in reading your book and especially in getting to the last chapter where you really sort of step back and, and look at this whole kind of emergent uh, phenomenon. Um, I couldn't help be reminded. I had read uh, a couple of years back. I had read uh, De Tocqueville's reread, actually, De Tocqueville's Democracy in America, mm-hmm. and um, he has this wonderful quote um, about voluntary organizations in a, in, a, in American culture, and he talks about that. It's part of the American culture to constantly form associations and um, that people are forming them in terms of uh, religion and social services and even entertainment. And just that this, this, this sort of you get this feeling that here he is in the 1830s, he's running around America and he's seeing self-organizing groups of people to address almost every community need. And he makes this point that if you were in France or you were in England, you wouldn't see this work being done by small voluntary groups. You would see it being done by the government or you would see right. it being done by the nobility. And right. and it's a reminder to me of how deep this thing runs in our culture. I think one of the interesting things about your book is that you focus on America uh, in the book. And yet you have this wonderful experience of being, you know, the executive director of the 
director of the Asia Business Council and the founder mm -hmm. of it. And so my question is about really from that international perspective. Do you think that something unique is happening here? And the other part of my question, I'm sorry, this is such a long question, but you know, no, then, okay. then we note also that Bill Drayton goes to India to found Ashoka. You know what I mean? Right. So I'm right. wondering about your, I think you have a unique, a unique perspective here, and I'd like you to comment uh, from that perspective. How is, is what is happening in America qualitatively different than what is happening in other uh, parts of the world? And, and, and if so, how is it, how is it different? Well, I I, um, I chose uh, social entrepreneurs in America because I needed to somehow contain the field. Otherwise, the book would be an encyclopedia. Right. Um, but I do think that um, Americans, I mean, we do do that. We form new organizations. If we're wronged, um, we seek a remedy. You know, someone, a tragedy happens, and, you know, oftentimes the, or, the person who suffered through that tragedy creates an organization so that other people won't have to suffer through a similar type of tragedy. It is a very American um, mindset. Um, having said that, however, I think that um, I do a lot of work in Asia, and I actually am doing a lot of work in the nonprofit um, social enterprise space now in Asia. And there's so much happening there in terms of new wealth, new opportunity, people leaving their traditional backgrounds and creating all kinds of new activities and endeavors and businesses. And that is starting to affect um, civil society as well. Um, so um, I think, for example, in China right now, they have um, – they have something called Weibo, which is their Twitter. Ah. Um, and there's hundreds of millions of people who use it. And if you, it's very powerful in China because if you think 140 characters, if I spell David, that's five characters, but in Chinese, that's five words. Wow. So, <laughs> so, right? so, so 140 characters is quite a powerful unit of sense in that. In right, that much more so than 140 letters. Yeah. Um, Right. So, so um, they have they have used this 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 Weibo, this Twitter, and they're essentially um, galvanizing so the social communities not only to give money and help with earthquake you know relief, which happened extraordinary amount um, after this last earthquake in Sichuan Province about a month ago. Um, Really, they just were able to recruit so many people and so much money and so many blankets and tents immediately through this mechanism. But this is the mechanism also that's bringing about some political change because people are starting to say, well, you know, such and so in my town is corrupt, and this is how I know, and that goes viral. Wow, wow. So um, it's, it's, it's forming essentially a, a, a grassroots movement that's much more invested in the society than, than I think the Chinese government ever bargained for. Um, but so I, I think that that level of engagement because of technology is fundamentally changing the way that people think about their own empowerment in society. And when you feel empowered, that's when you bring about change. And you know, Americans never relied. I mean, our, the history of our country is we didn't rely on the government. These are the people who came here from the beginning right. who said, you know, I'm relying on myself. So that 
sense of personal empowerment, that's spreading around the world, I think, through technology and changing the way people are thinking about their own um, their own mobility and their own social circumstances and those of the communities in which they're engaged in. So in five to ten years, we're going to see the first uh, international edition of your work with, uh, or maybe even closer than that, right? Well, <laughs> actually, I've already gotten the... I, Commercial Press in China is going to publish it in Mandarin, oh, and I great. and I'm adding five chapters to um, talk about the social entrepreneurs that that I know there. Oh, that's fantastic! Fantastic, yeah. and you well, we'll So after that. that's done, I'll come back onto your show and talk about that. Amen. That's terrific. That was <laughs> yeah. terrific. As as you look at the future, uh, you know, having mm-hmm. spent so much time thinking about this area. What is exciting you at this moment? What, what do you think that we're going to be talking about over the next few years that we're not talking about now? Well, I think, you know, when I, uh, I, um, I have always been amazed at, um, I, I, well, let me back up. When, when I graduated from college, I was always interested in Asia. And when I graduated from college, I went into the Peace Corps and I went to the Philippines. And in the Philippines, it's a predominantly Catholic country, and I was there. I here was this New Yorker who had come to do all these things. I was all of 22 years old, and thought I knew all the answers. And I ran up into this attitude of they call it their bahalatna, which means this is this is as God wills it. Ah. There's really nothing I can do about these circumstances. Right. And I found it so frustrating. Mm. And I see an extraordinary sea change in that, that personal empowerment, that notion that, in fact, I do have some control over my own destiny. And I think it's because, really, um, it's, it's phones, it's Internet. People are starting to say, I don't have to live with this situation, this status quo, any longer. I can make a change. And that, to Bill's point, to Ashoka's point of everyone a change maker, that's happening. Wow. They may not all become social entrepreneurs, but this notion of personal empowerment, I think, is a huge sea change. And when um, you're, yeah, I mean, and when you're in an ecosystem that is filled with people like that, the social entrepreneur becomes ten times more powerful. Absolutely, because you know, I, I, um, I, I won an award a few years ago, and I, and I said, and I, when I was accepting it, I said, I don't know that I could have created the Asia Business Council anywhere in the United States besides Silicon Valley, because in Silicon Valley, you know, this notion that I've, I, you've never heard of me, but I've got this great idea, is accepted. Right. Whereas so many peop- other places, they'd say to you, Really? And who who are you? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And, and if this is such a great idea, how come you're thinking of it? How come no one else has thought of it before you? Yeah. Um, and I think that um, that notion of um, I, I've got this great idea and you should listen to me, well, that is proliferating also. Um, and, and that is really positive. Ruth, we're almost at the end of our time together, and I believe that you know, many who will listen to this conversation will be either students of social entrepreneurship or themselves emergent entrepreneurs. And I wanted to ask whether you have any words of wisdom or advice, you know, for someone beginning their journey uh, and looking at maybe a 10, 20, 30 year time span of trying to make an impact. 
Well, I well I have of course I think that everyone should buy the, my book. Um, <laughs> yes. Now, available at a very reasonable price at on Amazon because it has um it's it's, it's essentially social entrepreneurship 101 the the whole field. Um but I also think that um in the past this notion of you know, you need to figure out what no one else has figured out, and you need to go out and create a new organization to solve a problem. Um, that's a high bar. And what I would say is, um, especially if you're young, it's good to go work within an organization and to think about being entrepreneurial. You know, how can you help that organization achieve, do a better job? How, what are new ways? that you can bring some some income, some products, some services into the mix that will help that organization. And that kind of experience is really useful before you go out and, and, and help you understand where you can add so much value and then create an organization downstream. Right. But I would say for young people to say, you've got to go out and create something de novo is 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 very hard to do, and I and I don't know that that's the only way to go about it. I think that it it's good to embed yourself and learn through working with an existing organization. Yeah, a, a, a quote in your book, which is wonderful, is a quote from Einstein, who talks about uh, the importance, uh, not necessarily of being a success, but of creating value. And I think that goes to what you're saying about about figuring out how to create value first, and then that's the pathway to success. Right. Yeah. So we really want to encourage our listeners to go out and get their own copy of Real Problem Solvers. It is available through Amazon, uh, through Barnes & Nobles, and also uh, directly from Stanford University Press. And we're going to post those links on our website. And uh, Ruth, thank you so much for your time today and your uh, terrific work. It's been really inspiring and fun. Oh, well, thank you so much, David, for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.